Okay, that's we, cool. Do we have we have a game tomorrow, right, PJ? Yeah. Sorry, you, you got another wedding you have to go to. No. The weddings. <laughs> that's kind of mean, Carl. Uh, well, another I have wedding I, that you wedding have here. to go to. <laughs> right. Yeah, like I went out of town. Yeah, I was actually. PJ wasn't really at a wedding. He he was sitting at home doing his yearly watch of Strange Brew. That's what that was. Yeah, <laughs> No sunlight or pillars, seeds of pain and walls. Does it talk? Does it know how? Does it bottle dust anyhow? Let on the street the bore. Ever shown so much more? The legal brains at the Okay, folks, welcome back to Cerebrivore. I'm your host, Jason, from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Today, we've got our original Not Ready for Primetime players. We have Carl Rodriguez, the Geomologist Presents, BJ Boyd of the Arcane Alienist, and Arlen Walker of Live from Pelham's Wasteland. We don't have Joe, Director of Hindsightless, here today, but we, you know, well, I, have a, I have a beer sitting here on the table. We have a place set for him, so he, his memory is with us. How are you gentlemen doing today? Wow, you say it like he's dead, Jason. His memory is with us. Well, yes, you know it, it. It is that kind. Of, it is that month. We're in the scariest month of the year. Yeah, not know? in the scariest month of the year yet. Maybe by the time people listen to it, but not when we're recording. Creative. Unless editing you think will, that September creative is the editing will month, edit. So. Creative, creative editing will fix that. Faux pas there, Mr. Walker. Well, maybe maybe we're just finding out that you think September is scarier than October. Maybe. Is it? Because it right because it's named for seven, but it's the ninth month of the year. There you go. Good question. Pretty scary. All right. All right. So, what we're going to do today, folks, is we're going to each of us are going to ask a impromptu question of, of the other <laughs> panel members. We don't know what each other's questions are, but it's just to generate some some conversation. And then we have a call in, a kind of lengthy call in from one of our listeners. MW of the world's MW Lewis podcast. That that part of the podcast is called MW on the crack pipe. But before we get to the crack pipe, we have our question segments. So do people have questions ready or do you want me to go first? Up to you guys. Go for it. Okay. Yeah, Jason, why don't you go first and, and show us how it's done? Okay. And and these aren't necessarily gotcha questions. They're like, so this is a oh, mine's gonna be a gotcha question. Well, that's fine. That's okay too. We 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 open this up to any kind of gaming questions. These are RPG questions, so so we have limited it to that to the the focus of the podcast. These aren't outside of gaming. But my question is, you know, Professor Dungeon Master over at Dungeon Craft YouTube channel has mentioned this recently, and it's also been in the zeitgeist due to the amazing success of Easy D Six. I don't know if any of you guys picked up Easy D Six by DM Scotty that's being published by Rune Hammer Games. Are you guys familiar with that? I can't remember if I have or not. Okay. Well, so one thing that DM Scotty has kind of popularized is this idea of luck dice. And he has it in his Easy D6 game is Karma. And it's basically the same kind of idea. So Easy D6 is based around D6 as it works a little bit different. But the idea is whenever a player fails a roll, they get a die. And, and it, depending on the system, but... So we'll just do the luck dice version, which is applicable to D20 games, 
right? You're, you can put it into 5e, you can put it into whatever game. So the idea here is if you fail roll, you fail check, then you get a d6, a luck die. And you're going to get one a turn. And you can cash that those luck dice in whenever you want to add to a roll. So if you make a d20 roll, you miss it, you can throw that d6 in there to try to make that you know that roll success. You can use it to add to damage, you can use it to soak damage. And the idea here is that if you if a player's having a bad day, the dice just aren't with them that day. Yeah, it's never fun, but this kind of helps mitigate that a little bit, that play experience. And also, you know, the the other reason he talks about doing this is the idea that you don't want players, especially if you're doing one shots in some of these systems, you don't want the characters to die in the first encounter right away, immediately in the game. And then you have to contrive a way for them to have a new, if we're sitting down for a four hour session and Carl's character dies in the first 15 minutes due to a bad die roll, then you know, then we have to come up with a way to incorporate another character for him or, you know, he has to go pick the pizza up or, or something, right? But either way, it's probably not super fun for Carl. So that's kind of the idea behind Luck Dice. Any thoughts on that, those kind of mechanics in games? So what's the actual question again? What, what's your opinion of adding a mechanic like that to a game that doesn't normally have a meta mechanic? So adding that, I, I know 5e has um, inspiration, but well, adding it to good. something like that. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because the, the play test they've just started in September. The first one of the first proposed rules changes was you would get you were going to you're going to get inspiration every time you roll a D20. And which what? a lot of people didn't like and the feedback they got a lot. I think they got a lot of feedback. People didn't like that. And they picked up on this this idea that, OK, well, how about if we try out you get an inspiration every time you roll a one and fail? Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so, this predates that change. So, yeah, maybe. I, I mean, it, this probably predates DM Scotty to some some degree. He's the first person I've really seen pushing it, but yeah. it, it's probably out there in the game somewhere. Well, yeah, I think I think that would, people people were suggesting why don't we get it on a one? And they I think they actually referenced DM Scotty's mm-hmm. yeah. right. Well, well it's in, it's empowered by the apocalypse, right? If you fail, you mark an experience point, that kind right. of thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a classic concept yeah. of I, I think especially it. It sort of depends on the um, kind of type of game and the style of game, I guess. I think the big thing that I would be interested in is uh, relating kind of that sort of luck element and the sort of action economy of the game, right? I mean, like with, um, because we mentioned uh, EZD6 and uh, Runehammer, right? In ICRPG, one of the ideas is everything is in turns. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the game is kind of built around that structure that, you know, you can try to do any number of things, but your your time is your resource, right? And I think that's something that would be a, a kind of major factor with something like this. Obviously, there's the kind of easy sort of bad faith examples that we would, as a DM, probably just say, no, you don't get luck for, you know, having a, a net of a minus one and trying to pick the lock over and over again and failing, right? You don't get luck each time you try to fail right. and fail to well, pick well, the lock. Unless it's like, well, if you don't pick it in three turns, then, you know, the monsters are going to come around the corner sort of thing. In which case, I probably would say, okay, well, yeah, if you're, you know, if it's a trade-off, I, I think that's the big thing with with me is I would say that in order for the the kind of flow to work right, you want the the kind of economy to be based around the idea that you know you didn't get something that you wanted from the role, but you get the luck to kind of balance that out. And so if you if you don't have anything that you care about when you roll, then you don't get any luck to balance that out, right? Right. And one of the mechan- and one of the rules in here is that if you've used luck 
on a failed roll, you can't get luck for that roll mm-hmm. kind of thing. So if you know, you know, if it's one of the, but yeah. And you're going to get one a turn too. Yeah. So, so it kind no, of keeps no, no. I think that, too much away. Well, um, and it's interesting because it's mechanically um, it's fairly similar to how um, Bardic inspiration works in five E. Mm-hmm. Although Bardic inspiration, I don't think you can use it for for damage or. Um, yeah, this is a little wider. Yeah, so a little wider, but it's but it is a kind of fairly similar concept of roll your d twenty and then add an extra die if you. And I kind of like I I tend to like those sorts of like roll your d twenty and then you have extra dice to add to that because um, obviously if you have some sense of how difficult something is that creates. I think an interesting decision for the player, right? That if you if you roll a 20, you're like, ah, oh, I probably don't need the D6. You roll a one, you're like, ah, oh, the D6 is probably not going to be enough to get over the difficulty. But if you roll, you know, like a nine and you think that the difficulty is like a 13 or 14, that becomes a real interesting decision of, well, do I use it here or do I wait and hope that I get closer next time to get a, a more bang for my buck on the luck rather than spending it on a roll? And do you do you get luck? for a role that you no, you said you don't get luck if you spent luck on the role right and fail right so. yeah and and then the d6 version is each luck point is a pip yeah so so if you've got two luck points you can add two pips to your, your d6 roll yeah the fact that right which, which makes sense um yeah. you, obviously you wouldn't use this like in savage worlds because benny's already do this mm-hmm. but it, it'd be well they have useful. something in savage worlds like that too they have conviction right yeah so, good yeah. point mm-hmm. yeah but but it, it, this is more of an add one for like you know OSC or yeah or like ICRPG or if I remember correctly the pure luck dice version which is is just added into other system one is mm-hmm. an actual D six and there's no limit to how many you can get so you can you can right. just stumble through the whole adventure just barely survive and then I, I picture like the the haggard adventure they finally get to the big boss and they're like I, I've had enough. This has been the worst day of my life, and they just start dropping fistfuls of decent. Right, and and that's the example he gives. Yeah, that's the example he gives in his in the in the rules. You, you can DM Scotty sells these for ninety nine cents. The luck die rule book, mm-hmm. and and it's um the example he gives in there is that it's a player using it to two 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 luck dice to six, successfully make an attack, one luck dice to add damage to finish off one monster, and a luck die to knock down the amount of damage that character took on one turn. Well, that would be the big thing I think is if you have a, like I might, I think one tweak that would be really easy to do is just add like a, you can't spend more luck dice on damage than you spent on the attack or something like that. So that you can't just be like, Oh, here's the monster. And here's all of my luck into killing this monster before it gets a chance to attack. Cause I think that would be kind of against the spirit of what it's going for. Right. But if you, if you made it something like, you know, okay, well, if you spend two luck dice on your attack, then you can spend, you know, up to three luck dice on your damage also that that might be kind of a clever way to handle something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, well the good thing is, that, is yeah, if you do that, it feel like a beak, it could be like an exploit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you just save everything till the end, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, well, yeah it's, it's, it'd be a kind of tweaking thing, but I don't, I don't know exactly how you would get it all. I would, if if you're accumulating big handfuls of die, I, I don't know if I would want to do a. I think I'd want. I don't know if I would want to do it like a per session, like you do with hero points. Well, yeah, these clear in his version, they go away at the end of the game, at the end he, of the session. Well, because then everybody's going to go Nova. They're going to look at the clock mm-hmm. and go, "Oh, it's ten thirty. Yeah. It's time. It's time to everybody go Nova with your yeah, your that's the danger. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and it depends on well, it depends a lot on the type of game that you're playing, I think, right? Because it's it's a little bit like some of the um resources like in the forged in the dark games that I think they do kind of an interesting thing along those lines in some ways where a lot of the resources are really tied to the the fiction flow rather than to the session flow. And so you get the kind of Nova effect sometimes, but it's always on like the last stage of the heist, not as like, oh, we're coming up on 10 o'clock. So everybody spin your points before they go away, even because we're not going to get through this dungeon tonight sort of thing, which always I personally, I like the the fiction tied version a lot more. But right. OK, well, we, we kind of Carl hasn't got a whole hasn't been able to get in very much. So I'm going to let Carl finish this out and then we're going to throw out for another question because we're about to the end of the, the time, my time. So since I'm a player's GM notoriously, I, I'm all for it. It'd be good to add it. I, I think there should be some modification so that you can't have like this giant, you know, pool of dice at the end and you can't accumulate them. Um, and it, I think that happens in like fate in fate games too, where you can accumulate all your plus two bonuses until the very end. Um, so I, I, that, that kind of, to me defeats the the challenge of the the big boss or the big encounter at the end. So I think there should be something where you got to use it or lose it type of thing incorporated into that. Or you know, or you have a you have a, a pool like I think I've done this with um, you know in our Hyperborea game where you have a pool of like you know uh, fortune points or whatever we're calling them, and um, and you you know the players can use them for various things. You know whether it's a I don't think we've quite used it for damage, but you can use it to mitigate bad things that happen to you. Um, and I, I don't mind that. Like if you need like a D6 for a saving throw because you barely you barely missed it, right? Or you, uh, or you need a D6 for damage to, you know, extra D6 or whatever the, the amount of the, the luck dice is to hurt the monster a little a little more that you're fighting, maybe take it down or, or something like that. That's not a, or to hit. I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. So I'm for it. But it just needs to be, it needs to be examined so that players who are smart, because most players are pretty savvy about, you know, that kind of stuff, and looking for exploits all the time. Arlen Walker. So, um, you know, <laughs> I'm wondering. So, yeah, <laughs> just I'm kidding. Yeah. No, but I have players who are savvy like that. So you got to really, you know, they question everything, right? They question everything. So, uh, so I think you got to look for. Look for ways that it can be broken and tweak it there. So it's fun for both the players and the GM and for all the players, right? Because if one player figures out how to exploit it and then, you know, throws down all the dice, you know, casts the big psychic wave of death, and the other player's like, well, why, why am I here? Yeah, that would be a, it seems like if you, like, if you have like a spell that attacks multiple targets, right? Put damage on that one and get your damage on everything versus... Yep. A single sword strike that you only get the damage on the one target. Yeah. So, right. so it sounds like we all like it. Just maybe tweak it for our tables. So, yeah. Excellent. Speaking of Anglo-Saxon, I learned today 
that the word Gotham means a goat town in Anglo-Saxon. But I've I've never seen a reference to goats in Batman. So, Carl, do you want to throw the next question out? Um, no, because I, I didn't do my homework this time, so i got to think about a question real quick. Okay. All I, right, so go ahead. Someone I else. A, I have a feeling Arlen has one. Uh, yeah, I've got one. So um, my thought was sort of uh, uh, about the idea of, um, I guess, uh, Structure isn't quite the right term, but some type of not a a person, but essentially an NPC um, that is involved in a sort of almost like a communal property of the group. So I think about like a pirate ship in a pirate game, right, where there's this idea of a a sort of something that is or like a, a, you know, secret base in a superhero game or even like a, you know, doesn't... uh, one of the Watsy um, D&D adventures have like a caravan or something um, that you're involved in. Uh, well, they have the one the um, based off the actual play where they're they, they get all the missions, right? Was it incorporated? Anyway, but the, the, the idea being of a sort of um, kind of like an extra or even even sort of like a, a castle in old school games, right? If you, you know, hit ninth level and are able to build a stronghold. Um, and I guess my question is, um, how much kind of, um, like control or, uh, explicit kind of rules structure do you want around something like that when you're playing, right? Like if you, if you've got the pirate ship, do you want like the DM just does everything pirate shipy behind the scenes, or do you want like, here's the speed in, you know, like knots, I guess is what they measure speed for boats in mostly. And then here's like, you know, you can pay 200 more gold and get an extra set of sails and get a little faster. And, you know, here's what the cruise morale is like and all that sort of stuff, essentially. You know, I think that's where the the new spell jammer kind of fell flat was that, Ships are basically floating platforms on which to engage in skirmishes with other creatures. You know, there, there's not any kind of rules for customizing the ship, you know, making it go faster, slower, maneuvering it, ship-to-ship battles or anything like that, as is they're closing in on each other or escape and evasion. Um, but I, I, a long time ago, I wish I could remember who said this, was... Um, when you give players a ship, whatever game you were playing before now becomes a game of customizing a ship. Whether you're playing Star Wars or Traveler, where there's a that you have to have a ship, or whether you're playing D and D and they manage to secure a ship, the first thing they want to do is, well, how can we soup up this ship? A base of operations they might be interested in, but it just kind of stays there, and you just want to make sure it's safe for them to come home because that's kind of what they're at. But but, but the ship, they're like, well, we can take this with us, and we can attack places, and we can go play. 
Um, and if you're not ready for that, that that's maybe maybe a session zero or maybe like a session zero part two where we, you get to that phase in the campaign goes, okay, guys, look, before you guys take ownership of this ship, let's talk about this. Or, we, or did we sign up? Or are we all here to play a game where you spend lots of gold and resources customizing a ship and having to hire a crew? And well, how many hit points do each of my crew, you know, or do you want the game where I just say, yeah, it takes you this long to sh- sail from place A to place B. And then now you're at a new low venture. It's like it drops, basically drops you off of the dungeon and, you know, you move forward. I encountered that in Storm King's Thunder in, there's a point point in Storm King's Thunder where they get access to an airship. And then Overland travel oh, wow. just becomes a matter of nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And so, and as a result of having a, a ship that can take them from places to places with travel times that sometimes take a couple of days, they could have their kind of big battle. And then, you know, a long rest and a full recovery was just guaranteed. It, it was this weird Whereas before, when they were having to travel across land, you could throw random encounters and challenges and things like that. And um, they get to bypass, I think, parts of the story, which is supposed to re- re- reinforce kind of the narrative of that adventure path. Um, so there are lots of implications of, of having it. And I'm, I know I'm going on about a ship and not necessarily castles or keeps or, um, you know, I, Carl, Carl, he wants to he wants to buy a tavern now in, in the village of Omelette. Yeah, well, I can speak to that as far as I was in Carl's game. Carl used to run a game called Broken Lands. Hopefully, it's just on hiatus where we were playing monsters. It's based on the Orcs of Thar uh, Gazetteer for Beckming. And in that, we, our gang, had gotten a hold of a of an area. It was a hideout, you know, like a hideout. And we did spend money and effort to, and, and we did worry about, customizing the hideout and protecting it and, and we had our own gang that we hired you know henchmen that we hired and all to to guard and you know before we went on a mission you had to decide you know who's going to stay back and guard the the base of operations and all that so even a base of operations you, you know takes that kind of planning and the good thing is that the stuff for the base of operations is pretty easily available lamentations of flame princess has a really even the free version has pretty good basic rules for doing all that management kind of stuff and then if you want detailed stuff, um, Axe, uh, Venture Conquer King system has really detailed stuff. But the stuff in Lamentations really is plenty mm-hmm. for most games. And like I say, you can get the free version of it that has it all. But yeah, you can, and that's definitely a great way to fleece characters of gold. If you're, if you're not playing AD&D First Edition, if you're not doing training costs, then ships or keeps or hideouts are great ways to get gold out of your character's hands because... You know, they can suck them up quick. But but Carl probably can offer a lot more insight I can on this. Well, I think that's the main thing. It's like, what do the players do with their gold, right? Uh, first, talking about Broken Lands, right? You know, you in BX especially, whereas in AD&D, they have rules for like, training, so that kind of takes your money from that. And then there's like this idea of domain play later on in BX. I mean, we just have like in our uh, OSE Temple of Elemental Evil game, we have so much money. What the hell are we going to do with it? The same thing happened in Broken Lands. They get so much money. You know, what are they going to do with it? So that's, the, that's in a way, is a good way to you know, start domain play early. And that's a good way to, to have that going. And I think I took inspiration from, you know, Hexcrawl and Eric Hoffman and company did Paul Wolf, um, Cody Mazza, Jason Hobbs, et cetera, uh, what they did. 
you know, and they had simple rules for what happens in the background while you're off adventuring to your domain. So you can scroll for encounters and stuff like that. And I think a lot of that is inspired by, you know, um, what's that guy's name? Uh, Kevin Crawford's, you know, uh, a red, you know, red tide and uh, echo resounding mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. So, so there's ways to definitely do it. And I, I think it's a cool thing. And what I, what I always think is fascinating to me uh, to answer Arlen's question is that I feel like there's always like one player who really grabs hold of that. Like when we were talking about playing, wanting to start a Kingmaker game, for example, one of my players is like, Oh yeah, I, I've already, he's already started reading through the player's guide, the 87 page player's guide for Kingmaker. And he's like, it has everything for domains and how to build your, your kingdom. I want to do it. So he's very excited about it. The same type of player who, who loves to do the, the trading in, in space trucking when you play that, that version of Traveler. It's like the same as, a, you know, I remember I had a player who, who owned, who was a noble, who owned the yacht, who wanted to do space trucking, had the, you know, way, this is way back, like in the 90s when Excel was first coming out. And spreadsheets were like a, a big thing, and not everyone knew how to work them. Now, now everyone kind of should. But um, you know, you would have a spreadsheet and how you do your space trucking and how you sell high, you know, uh, sell high or sell high, buy low, all that kind of stuff. You, you really want that into. It. So I think you always have a players who, who do that, and I think that encourages them who maybe they're not they're not the ones who are the face. They're not going to play the you know, the the horny bard who talks to everyone you know, in the adventure, or they're not the one who likes to optimize and beat up everyone up. But there are some players who just like the intellectual game within the game, right? And it's funny that some some design, I'd say, I say Paizo is probably the most uh, notorious or well for, known for it, is that every single adventure path has some sort of mini game, right? So like Age of Ashes, keep building, right? So uh, um, Abomination Vault, surprisingly, I don't think it really has a mini game. Although there's kind of like interaction with NPCs and building your own fortune in the town, kind of. But then they had one one where like you, you build this, you design and build and maintain a caravan to go over the spine of the world. That's in one of the adventure paths, right? You have the ship thing in, in Skulls and Shackles. So, and of course the in Kingmaker famously building the kingdom. So so I think it's a I think it's cool. I think it's fun. And, and hopefully you'll have the new group, that player who wants to do it, because then because uh, then it's it, it takes less off the GM, right? And I think in Broken Lands we had you know uh, we had people who were interested in designing the keep uh, and maintaining it, and people who were you know in the in the other part of the Broken Lands you know maintaining the the, the little city state right that was formed. And I think it's a fun mm-hmm. part of gameplay, uh, really. You know, it it makes it it makes it feel like it's more than just uh, you know you're kicking in the doors and killing monsters and taking their stuff. You feel like you make a mark in the world. The world changes. I guess that's kind of the cool thing about it. And even more recently, like yesterday, and uh, I finished uh, *Sinister Secret of Saltmarsh* for 5e. And the character, there's a chance that the character spoiler get a ship, and of course they want the ship. They're like, oh my gosh, it's like a taxi. <laughs> right? and, the, 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 and if I recall, in the original AD&D version, of the module, the DM is instructed under no circumstances to allow the characters to. You're supposed to like. Oh no, the, the ship, ship is on fire. <laughs> Abandoned ship. Whatever you do, don't let them take the ship. But I yeah, I know players now. I don't know. It's not players nowadays, but I guess maybe I'm fortunate that my, a lot of my players just don't. Maybe it's because the games they play or, or their interests. Like one one guy made a comment that it was us is becoming parallel to Warhammer Fantasy. We have a boat, and this you player character are collecting a menagerie of animals. So you know, it's, there, there's some players that have a type, right? And that's the way they play in every game. And, and I don't, 
you know, hey, if one player wants to start collecting all the animals that you can get, like it's World of Warcraft and you're collecting pets, that's awesome. I think it's better. I mean, I think because honestly, like the trigger of mine is cruelty to animals and killing animals. So I love it to have a player that if we find a guard dog, we're not going to kill the guard dog. We're going to like, you know, do the the animal handling thing to try to control the guard dog. And now it's a pet. <laughs> I think that's awesome. So, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind. Uh, I guess the, the question that you asked, Arlen, you know, having that domain, having that game within a game and, and you know, NPCs in the background. And actually, in the in the version, in the five E version here, and since the Salt Market says that the uh, the kingdom will will give on loan, you know, a crew to to pilot the ship, right? So, mm. in a way, players don't have to worry about it; they can if they want to. Yeah, so that would go back to what BJ said: the idea that make when when it comes up, make sure to have that separate con- you know, stop the game or have that session, yeah, you have to, session right? zero point two and say, listen, do you guys want to count the beans and you know the the barrels of water and you do you want to count all every all the the number crunching that takes to maintain this or do you just want me to hand wave it what what kind of game do you want to play and, and i think that's kind of neat that yeah that's yeah. neat that the salt marsh one gives you that option they mm-hmm. can either control the boat or hey it's on loan from the kingdom mm-hmm. so then the kingdom it's like a rental the kingdom pays for all the maintenance no and that's the cool. other thing that comes up with this whether you're talking about a castle or a ship or, or whatever is um Whose ship is it? This is a team game. It's a team sport, and we're all mm-hmm. equals. And we're all partners. But who's the lord of that cat? Named the lord of that castle. Who's the captain of that ship? And I know I one of I think the most recent casting shadows. Anthony was talking about his Star Trek game, and one of the things that's presented in Star Trek is the captain is an NPC that is just kind of owned by the party. You yeah, know, the DM right. can control them, or the, the it's just kind of there, and then. Players can take turns kind of role-playing the captain if you need the captain to do something, but it's sort of an idea that we're not going to make anybody the captain of the ship. And I know in Traveler, ships are investments and everybody has own shares in the ship, and it kind of takes care of it that way. But when you're thinking about kind of D&D-style games, it's like, okay, well, somebody owns this ship. Or somebody's the, at, least, at least if we all own it, somebody's the captain. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, maybe we all own this property. You know, it, it kind of goes against the medieval grain to think that a, a duke is going to say, well, the five of you have really impressed me. So you now communally own 60 acres in the North Farthing and build a castle and you're all jointly lords and ladies of. <laughs> yeah, it's usually going to be like one, right? That's the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess in Star Trek, I don't know. I, I feel like there's there's characters who are in command and they're the ones who are in charge. So you can actually be like a PC who is the captain of your, your boat, right? I think he was talking about being an op- an option. It's not like the yeah, okay, okay. it's one way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, or, or, I mean, I guess a, a great example is Ars Magica, right? If you've ever played Ars Magica, one person is the is the the magician and everyone else is like a sidekick. And you know, how does how does that, I've never played it or run it, so I don't know how that dynamic works, right? Or, you know, I guess if, essentially it seems like in most group dynamics, one person's going to say, okay, I'll do that. Or I'll, you know, volunteers to do that. I'm going to be the, the quartermaster. I'm going to be the note taker. I'm going to be the mapper. Okay, I'm going to be in charge. And some people are cool with that. Some people are not. I know like in like in Skulls and Shackles, everyone everyone sort of said, okay, no, you seem like you'd be the best. They kind of looked at everyone's skill set and they were egalitarian enough. And 
I guess, metagamey enough to like, okay, that guy, that guy should be the captain because he has X, right? But then the nav, the the helmsman was a different person because the helmsman had the best, you know, boating skill or whatever, right? Yeah. So there, so there's different roles, and I think Starfinder does a great, a great job with that too, is being able to put people into roles. So like, the captain's not going to be, you know, the the dude, the dude with the broadsword and the patch, you know, in, in Starfinder, it's going to be the guy who can who can talk to the other ships better and and uh, you know and command has those skills to command better as opposed to shoot to gunning or shooting or engineering or piloting, right? So so there's it's really interesting that so some games um, do that. I think Star Trek in a way is interesting in that it has like if you're an, you're the chief engineer, you have a group of people under you like faceless, you know. Uh, I guess it would be, would it be, are they yellow? Yellow shirts, right? In engineering, is it yellow in engineering? That are under you that, uh, in operations, that do stuff, right? So, in words in command, you have a bunch of red shirts that Captain Kirk throws in front, in front of the Gorn to get eaten. So. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've, we've done our 15 minutes there. I will reach out <laughs> to Anthony to see if he's interested in coming on, if you guys want to do a, a, a cast on troop play. And we can invite him on here to do that. Yeah, if you guys are, I, that'd be, I think that'd be an yeah, interesting yeah. topic. So, so we'll get him on here for that. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's definitely said he'd love to come back on. Issues. Is that why? Is that why goth kids strive to be so pasty? And yeah. a lot of that is kind of late romantic art, and so I suspect it's just too many kids reading Edgar Allan Poe and being like, "Oh, I want to be mm-hmm. like the Raven because he's so cool." Probably or the like, crow. Yeah, but do you we, we need that? Joe on for this one. Yeah, or the crow, right? <laughs> Now it's time for another question. So since Carl is working on his homework still, we're going to throw it to BJ. Oh, boy. Um, I think, and, and I think we, we may have t- touched on this before in other topics, in other panel discussions and probably individually at various times, but what's the most efficient way to you get, to, to get players to, um, you've done a little bit of world building, you've got a, a presumed culture or societal system that you've set up. How do you get players to pay attention to it without just hammering, constantly hammering over the head of you can't do that. That's illegal in this world. Mm. No, you can't do that because that's not how the gold works in this, you know, how many times do I have to tell you that we use the silver standard, not the gold standard, you know, because sometimes I think as a DM, it can, you almost don't want to homebrew anything because People just read what's in the player's handbook and they don't they don't absorb when you say, well, we're going to do things a little different to go for a different tone or a different mood or a different flavor. Hmm. That's a good question. Scratching their heads. So how, do you, yeah. how do you prevent players from... I, I think that goes to like communication in session zero um, really is... This is the way that this is the way the society works. Hopefully, the players' characters buy in, and you have to be prepared as a GM to like, okay, you have the discussion, right? You can't. I don't think you can blindside them suddenly. 
So if they're used to playing a certain way, and then you you know you're gonna be put in say they're used to playing a certain way in the wild west of of D and D world D and D verse, and then you throw them into like a a, 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 a game like Iron Kingdoms, uh, where there's a strong central government and society. There are certain norms and etiquette. It's kind of more like a Victorian England or a 19th century England in its mindset, complete with trains too. So, um, so you know, you you have to let them know what society's like, and and you can't be you can't just go around you know killing the men at arms in the town, right? This is not the Wild West. It's strict rules and stuff. And then and then if they if they do step out, then you know, hey, I've warned you. You got to GM. You have to be prepared to, to attempt to punish them, right? And sometimes that might be hard because you know uh, their players can be pretty powerful. You can't just uh, let's say like in Waterdeep, if they mess up, you can't all of a sudden you know. I mean, you could, you could punish them pretty severely, but you know, um, I don't know. You have to be prepared to do that, I guess, if they act out. I think. Yeah, I think it often. I mean, I think one of the big things is that there's a measure of, um, for lack of a better term, kind of good faith mistakes versus uh, not caring, I guess. Um, so, I mean, one of the one of the big things with that being, I, I agree that it depends a lot on kind of um, session zero, and I think it also it often it, helps a lot um perhaps if you're not actually calling what you're playing D&D that um you know if if especially when you get players who have played a lot of like a specific game and you just say oh we're going to play this game but with these differences i think it can be easy for the but with these differences to sort of fade into the background or become a source of friction right i mean you see that you know the various stories all the time of people being like what you won't you won't allow this feat in your 5e game and it's like well this is not an adventures league game. So no, I'm not going to have this particular feat that you were excited to use. And, you know, didn't, we didn't talk about it at all. And so, you know, not necessarily interested in in doing that. Um, But I think also it's, I mean, I I think the thing is that there's times when um, everybody is going to forget elements of the, the setting and stuff like that. And that it really, I think is built on, um, sort of judiciously as a DM, recognizing the difference between a player saying, you know, well, I want to say something, something and saying, hey, you know, just be aware this is, this is not like a place where your player character is like allowed to do that sort of stuff. Are you sure? Versus a character who says, well, I say something, something. And it's like, oh, you just don't care about any of this. So you're going to speak up like that. And in the presence of the king and the king's going to be like, get this asshole out of here sort of thing. Right. And that's a, yeah. a difficult line to walk often. Um, I'm thinking mostly of good faith yeah. mistakes where it's just one of those things that. Yeah. I, how, do you, how do you constantly make the setting live and breathe so that people kind of immerse themselves in it? Well, and I think there's a lot of, so I think one of the big things that you can do is really um, kind of, um, I think about, for instance, the way that like nature documentaries handle a lot of their storytelling, um, because often, right, a nature documentary is sort of built around often there's some amount of kind of plot story something that they've kind of come up with out of footage or things like that um but a lot of the kind of total runtime is sort of explaining this particular world 
Um, and so I think there's a number of things that kind of come into that, right? So you get the like, you know, start with the sort of simple elements and especially the kind of simple elements that are really easy to follow for someone who doesn't have a lot of experience in this world. Um, there's a there's an old BBC series called Walking with Dinosaurs, and then they did Walking with Prehistoric Beasts, and then they did, uh, I think, one about like early humans that's kind of Australopithecines on into like Homo erectus and Homo sapiens. All anyway, um, in Walking with Beasts in particular, there's one episode that I really, really love that starts with a um, the, the male of this pride of um, Smilodon, saber-toothed tigers, essentially, is deposed by a pair of um brother smilodon males and so it works very much like it does with modern day lions um on a savanna right that there's only room for one leader at the top um but these two they're brothers so they work together and so they're able to outfight half tooth who's got a broken tooth so that's why it's called half tooth right um but it's a really very very simple plot structure essentially right it's, it's about as simple as you can get half tooth is kicked out he is not really in shape to hunt for himself anymore. So he's got to figure out how to beat the brothers and get the, the pride of Smilodon back. Otherwise he's going to starve to death, right? Really, really simple kind of plot wise. And then most of the runtime is just spent kind of here's what's going on in the world and how it happens to relate to this kind of really strong core plot element that, that is kind of our, our sort of character centric focus right that that you know if we care about half tooth the smilodon then we care when you know there's a, a megatherium which is basically a giant ground sloth which is huge um and it basically beats one of the brothers to death and so then half tooth's got a chance and he's going to get back and it's you know that's i think i think there's a lot to be learned from that in terms of trying to explain or, or to convey understanding of especially a kind of complicated world that does not necessarily fit a lot of the players kind of preconceptions from like other DD games. I mean, even, even basic stuff, you know, like I think a lot of DD players just assume, oh, of course you can just, you know, walk around with all your weapons and find somebody to fight for. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at the historical evidence, the people who have, you know, a, a serious investment in, you know, the stability of an economic productivity of a region often don't want adventurers to just kind of walk up and say, hey, where's some goblins we can kill and some stuff we can loot? Because as in real life, murder hoboism is a very easy shift for uh, adventurers. And so, you know, the first time you present a set of player characters with, here's like a mercenary contract. I, I think some of them will be like, what the hell is this? What do you mean? Like an actual like mercenary contract that's like, here's the expectations for what you're supposed to do. And here's exactly how much you get paid. And you're entitled to 60% of the loot that you recover, but the other 40% has to come back to the coffer sort of thing. Right. Um, but that is something that I think you can totally kind of explain at the beginning. And especially if you're, you know, depending on how you're playing, if you have a way to, you know, share notes or, or have like a handout in a roll 20 game or something, putting, you know, maybe like a bullet list of here's the most important things to keep in mind that you've had happen so far 
is I think an easy way to, to just be like, Hey, you know, pay attention that this is going to be a little different than what you're expecting. And I think it does really help if you, you know, if you say, if people sign up to play pin dragon, they come in with a lot more expectations about playing the feudalism game than if they come in and say, Hey, we're playing D and D right. And you say, well, we're playing D and D, but you're going to have to memorize some genealogy first. Yeah. And that's what, where I was going to go with is what Arlen hit there at the end. You, the even though we don't want to hear it as a DM, you've got to have player buy-in before you start it. If you want to do yeah. your custom thing and your players just don't care, they just want to go out and you, you know kill stuff and take their take you know kill things and take their loot and or yeah can't talk you know but you you know what I'm saying if if the players have in their mind they just want to play D and D they don't want to play Pendragon but you really want to run Pendragon then you, you need to find a group that really wants to play Pendragon. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know yeah. what I mean? And unfortunately, that's the the sad truth. If you have this cool sword and planet setting set up and you're using D&D 5e rules, but you're playing sword and planet, and so you've got all these tweaks and the society's tweaked and all, and your players aren't interested in that, they're they're just not going to, you know what I mean? They're, they, they've got to have full buy-in. So without player buy-in, I, I don't think you're going to get there. I think if you have player buy-in, those good faith mistakes, Arlen gave us a lot of great ways to to work with that. Um, and 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 Carl's right. Once you lay down the thing and they agree to it, then, I mean, there have to be consequences, too. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to execute a player that makes a faux pas, but, you know, throwing them in jail overnight or something, is, is, you know, and, you know, teach them, hey, you really can't, you know, call the king a douchebag, you know, might be appropriate. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, what I, if the king is a what if the king is a high level spellcaster? Just polymorph any anything, and you're like a a, a rock now. Yeah, I mean, it's but but it, yeah, it's what I, I, I think it could. comes down to good faith, right? The good faith. Yeah, the yeah. Versus the, I think it's yeah. A, a, yeah, I think if it's a you know if it's a player that's just you know they didn't think about it, and I think that's often it's kind of a an odd thing that. Um, you know, you get into like discussion, right? That sometimes players want to have like, hey, can we, you know, have a sidebar as a party that takes no time at all in the game world, but lets us all get onto the same page. Um, and uh, that sort of also goes under session zero, right? Is, 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 is that something that this group does where the player characters just kind of have a chance to telepathically communicate essentially and figure out what their game plan is going to be? Or is this sort of- Using alignment that, language. Yeah. Or is this the sort of thing where, well, if, you know, if the king says something that really pisses off one player character and the other player characters are like, hey, you shouldn't you shouldn't feel like that. Is that something that happens in the world or is that something that happens outside of the the world of the game? And that's, a, you know, I, I think that really falls under session zero also. Right. It's just establish with the players. This is a game where, you know, when you say something as your character, it happens in the world so you can't just you know put your hand up and say hey this this dude's an asshole but we're going to get his money so it's okay and because they'll hear that right versus other games where you can just be like hey let's you know take a 10 minute strategy break and you know we'll just all outside of the world of the game say yeah this king's an asshole but we really want his money so let's just take his money and, and betray him later and the king has no idea yep definitely so that was a great, all these are great, well, mine was an okay question, but so far you guys have given us really great questions.
Yeah. I mean, ravens are bigger than crows. That's probably BJ could tell you too, right? Oh, well, there, and there uh, aren't well, ravens. There's a lot of ravens in Oklahoma. I thought they're Corvidae, right? Both. No, we only have crows. Yeah, well, I mean, you I see the ravens to get farther west. Yeah, yeah. Not okay. I thought I thought I saw crows in Oklahoma. Or ravens in Oklahoma. I know New Mexico for sure. You start seeing crows, and there's I get some out in the western there, part of the state. Honestly, there's yeah. Yeah, you know, honestly, they're scary big. <laughs> they're bigger than you think ravens are. And then they have like ridges on their teeth. They're like, man, they're like, they're carnivorous, aren't they? Well, and ravens, like dinosaur right? Holdovers. They're like in in parts of Europe, right? Ravens will like bond with wolf packs and lead them to prey and then feed on like the scavenged remains. because the they, They'll do it in the Rocky them. Mountains as well. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, because well, I mean, so they're all led by a vampire. Somewhere. I know. That's awesome. That would be a great. Yeah, that's a good story. For, yeah, for like a for a game, right? Is be like you have to find the vampire. The only way to find him is by like tracking the wolf killings because the the vampires going around and and you know leading the wolves to slaughter sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. which all ties into the children of the night, right? Yeah, yeah. But lovely music. All these are great questions. Well, mine was an okay question, but so far you guys have given us really great questions. So Carl, we expect the best out of you. Yep. Dang. I don't know. Mine was, uh, mine was just going to be games using percentile dice or games using D20. That's an awesome question. Why or why not? What is better? And are there, you know, we can discuss like, are there more games? I guess this is in a way prompted because last night I was looking, I was at the, dragon's lair and i was looking at outbreak undead and i'm like man i, I never grok the system and then i was reading through the player's book i'm like oh wow it's just like a percentile die system that's pretty easy to get get our, your your head around and then we were discussing it you know because we use you know, percentile dice for warhammer fantasy for call of cthulhu right so um so i, I think it's pretty but then but then you know we're like oh but then the d20 system i mean i don't know maybe straight d20 is not so great but but then Modifius did something brilliant and added another D20. And now you have like a sort of a, it's a flat, flattened bell curve and still have a little bit of a bell curve, you know, when it comes to like rolling dice. So it's a 2D20. So I don't know. So well, it's a big question. Well, I'll throw out my answer really quickly and then let you, you smarter people answer. Mm-hmm. Up till the D20 explosion with D&D 3.5 and all that, with the D&D OGL stuff, you had more D percentile systems. I think now if you just count number of systems, Thanks to the D20 boom, there are probably more D20 systems. Ultimately, and Arlen will expand on this with Pendragon talk, but ultimately, D20 is just D percentile in five-point increments, right? It, effectively, mm-hmm. a, a D20 and a, and a D100 roll are the same thing. You're just The D100 is more granular. I prefer D100 because I like the idea of having the mechanic in there where you can switch the two. So if you, you roll a 38, you might add the mechanic where you can spend a point or because of you have a skill that you can change that 38 to an 83. I like that. That a bit. I, li- I like that little tweak. You, a lot of games percentile games have and percentile is really easy to explain to people. D20 is easy to explain to people too, but percentile is, you know, well, what percent chance do I have? Hey, th- you have a skill 30, you have 30%. I, so I think it's, I like D percentile. I think there are probably, if we counted by numbers, probably more D 20 games out there because of the D20 boom, but I could be wrong on that. 
and I will throw it to whoever wants to pick it up. I think you're right. Mathematically, I think even even when people use a percentile system, they tend to go in increments of five, unless the book tells them to do otherwise. And so you want it's effectively a D twenty. Um, I think the D percentile is more intuitive, but the D twenty is faster when people can use it because it's one roll as opposed to. You got to do the mental, it, it's, it's quick, but you, you still have to do kind of, there's about a second of cogitation where you go, okay, which one was the tens and which one was the hundreds and what does that give me? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think my, I tend to think of D20 just because I've played more D&D than anything else. I know statistically it doesn't matter, but there's something more familiar about the D20 to me. Um, but I, well, back and forth. D20 though, it's like, D20 though, you, there is a bit of cogitation when you have like a, you have to hit like a DC, right? You have to add, do some maths, right? Where you, mm-hmm. oh, what is my skill number? And what is a DC I have to hit? I roll a D20, now I got to add. So I don't know, uh, maybe it's, what's the, I think, the I think, speed? The speed of the speed of uh, recognition versus the speed of addition. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, there may be people who aren't familiar with the percentile systems who are put off by the idea from having to deal with thief skills in, in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and, and they think in the, in the, if you're trying to introduce someone to a percentile based system, you need to make it real explicit. Look, look, this is kind of like a D20. It's just more granular. And just like if we were playing a D20 game, I'm going to give you situational bonuses and penalties and boons and stuff. That's going to, you know, and, and they will be proportionate. I'm I'm not going to give you a plus one bonus on a D percentile roll. I'm going to give you a plus five bonus on a percentile roll, you know. Um, well, as long as you can explain people the, the way that math works out the same, I think they're, they'll be fine with it. But I think a lot of people, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this kind of system when I played a thief and I sucked at everything. Because <laughs> Well, and I think that's part of in my opinion, a lot of the difference between kind of D percentile and D20 comes down less to the dice and more to the kind of major games that have kind of shaped the culture around those particular systems, right? That um, I, so personally, I think D20s roll better than D10s um, in general because D10s are weird. Um, so I like using D20s, but also like you can have a D, you can roll two D20s for your D100 roll and just, you know, divide the number on each of them by two and use one as the 10 well, digit and one well, as the one digit. Or you can have the special, Jason's going to tell us about the old school dice that just, yeah. you know, you just ignore the, the pluses twice. Yeah. 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 So, so there's all sorts of things there. I think the bigger difference, I think a lot of the people that don't care for um, D percentile often it has to do with um, a sort of sense of especially the kind of um, chaosium or now chaosium, but kind of historically there are other people that have published RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu in particular. Um, and, you know, you get the, the the classic criticism of D100 gaming or D percentile gaming is the, the basket weaving skill in um rune quest right and the idea of okay so yes it sort of fits the idea of being a person who lives in this pre-industrial world who has to figure out something to do with their hands to you know survive in their village 
but also as an adventurer, I, you know, when am I ever going to roll basket weaving for something that matters other than maybe yeah. for like a, you know, like if you have a salary check for a season or something to see if you, you know, made a little extra money or if you need to dip into your savings sort of thing. Right. Um, and of course the, the converse of that, I think is that a lot of the sort of culture around D 20s becomes like, Oh, D 20 games have classes, right. D 20 games have levels. D 20 games have, a sort of you know traditional hit point structure and have you know a you know a class with a base attack bonus system right or something like that and of course i mean the the example jason already kind of spoiled it a little bit but pendragon for instance is a game that uses what is mathematically basically the same thing as old school rune quest where it's just you have a, a rating out of 20 and you're trying to roll under on your d20 well that's just the same as your d100 but in increments of five but then you have a a kind of you know it's using a d20 but a lot of the kind of mechanical bits in play um you know you have a, a much shorter skill list and often the skill list is much more kind of explicit in pendragon than in some of the d percentile games where you have lots of you know here's all of the kind of you know particular wacky skills that you might put on your character sheet but won't use as much as library use in call of cthulhu that sort of thing um and then you have a you know for instance a combat system that in pendragon works a little like dnd it's not quite the same because it's uh can in most versions of Pendragon, it's essentially a contested role. And it's basically whoever gets the better success on their weapons check does damage. And then you have a, a damage value that is basically based on how big and tough your character is that you have a big and strong character, you get more D6s when you roll damage. Um, and then you subtract the armor value of the target from and the armor value of the target is based on what type of armor they're wearing and if they're using a shield and all that sort of stuff but in play it i think is sort of a fairly different you know you can see where like a lot of the mathematical elements come from rune quest and and plenty of the kind of sort of character emphasis and especially kind of world emphasis elements in pendragon seem to be similar to rune quest but also there's you know it's using a d20 it's not using a d percentile so if somebody asks you you know oh those those d percentile games they always have basket weaving and you say well here's this game that doesn't and and honestly i think it's one of the really interesting things that there are games that have kind of pushed back against that in some other ways the um open quest d101 games i think is the the publisher for that uh -huh. one there's, yeah new ports games yeah, yeah there's now i think they're on the third open quest 3 is the current one um, and it's really interesting because it takes the sort of mathematical structure of roll your d percentile under your skill value um but makes it a lot closer to something even almost like barbarians of lemuria sometimes where you have like here's a in that case they don't have like full-on careers but they do have a fairly short skill list and one of the other things one of the kind of interesting pieces of advice in um open quest that i remember is don't nickel and dime the players that if you have a modifier on a roll have it be of like 25 percent or more right 25 percent for a small change, 50% for a big change. That's all the modifiers you do. And as a result, you don't do nearly as much of looking up, oh, well, you get a plus 5% for this particular type of tool, but you get a minus 10% because you're working in not so good light. And I think that's another thing that a lot of people 
end up pushing back against with the percentile is this kind of culture of, well, because you've got so many numbers, you can do so much math as you're trying to figure out what you need to roll your D percentile under. And that, you know, at the core, it's, it's a fairly similar thing, right? You just, you know, roll the dice, try to roll, you know, the, the right sort of success, but. Hmm. So I don't know. I, for me, I like, rolling in person i like rolling d20s more than rolling d10s because d10s are weird um personally i think the big thing like i said a lot of it for me is that the things that i uh in some ways don't like about both of them have to do more with the kind of culture around those sort of gaming systems that you know oftentimes i feel like classes and levels sometimes work but are not nearly as um applicable to everything as the kind of class and level apologists seem to think they are that you know yes you could make the case that like well aragorn is probably a ranger class in lord of the rings but is you know are all the characters in the fellowship of the ring really kind of you know contained within a class and level structure and would that actually be any fun to play if you were trying to play that adventure or would the people playing mary and pippin be like uh i'm gonna go off for a little while and they get captured by urkai for a little while so you know mm -hmm. well, anyway but that's that's sort of my thought is that often i think that my kind of thought about it is less about the the dice and more about the kind of how much does a particular system kind of embrace the culture of a lot of the other games that use the similar dice. I, I think that's very fair. C Carl, did you have thoughts on your question? Um, no, I'm, I'm gonna gonna steal y'all's ideas and answers. Okay. No, I, Excellent. I, I don't I think there's pros and cons to both. Uh, really, I um I do like uh, percentile dice systems, but mainly it's because of the system. Um, but there, are, there, are, I, maybe I maybe I enjoy like uh, like a game like Pendragon that uses a d20, but uses it as a you know that is like more like a percentile dice system as opposed to like a, a roll the dice, add something to hit a target number, right? Like three five, three five, and then you so so Pendragon, right? You had to hit. You gotta get below mm -hmm. right so or or at and um which i think is pretty interesting so and it kind of i like the way they use it in that regard but uh, and that would be just you know how where you're whether you prefer to roll a, a d20 or a d10 I, I i don't know i don't i really it, i i guess i brought that up because i do like percentile dice systems because for me they're pretty intuitive well, yeah and it's interesting because there was a you know D, &D obviously won out but when you look at the early tsr games the only other game that wasn't oh. a D percentile game was Gamma World. Top Secret, Boot Hill, Star Frontiers, Gangbusters. They're all D percentile, all percentile. games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Which one did you say was not? Um, Gamma World. Gamma World. Well, Gamma World is like D20, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Gamma World's closer to D&D. &D. Yeah. It's yeah. very close to AD&D. &D. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, it's, so it's interesting that, you know, the but, you know, so there are so many others out there that aren't. Mm -hmm. um but no i i, I mean obviously you know I, I think we all play both and then we also play d6 systems and you know i i think we're all pretty open-minded we're not you know i only play this kind of game mm -hmm. um, that, that begs begs the question you know part of the reason fourth edition D, &D tanked was because they killed too many sacred cows of of D, &D. Mm. is D, D a game that would probably run better if they would use a percentile system but 
it just can't be done because of the at this point it's legacy. Role master. <laughs> yeah. I mean at that point just play role master. It's a better game. Right. Yeah. So well, that's for or, or 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 if you you have to have you know some D twenty in there, just switch to Palladium. Play Palladium Fantasy instead. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I guess we're going to listen to MW now. Yes, time to suck on that crack pipe. So we we're going to go ahead and. I thought I used. I thought it was down. worlds of MW, not crack pipes. MW. Oh. Well, well, I'll let you listen to the calls and and, and we'll okay. see how he does. No, and, we, can and, we pause to take a break? Yeah. Yep. Okay. yeah, we will pause at, at this point. Well, that was the the story my grandmother tells is that at least in uh, Dallas and Houston, the first uh, buildings that got air conditioning were like the the theater opera house places wow. so that all of the rich mm-hmm. women could pull out their furs so that they would look extra nice <laughs> when the AC was on really cold because you couldn't wear them any other time in Dallas and that's Houston. Funny. I was like, OK, so that's that explains a lot about those two places. Yeah. So this set of calls is from MW, World's MW Lewis, who currently is in Orlando, Florida at GrogCon. We are recording this on the 30th of September. So Arlen's right. It's not the scariest month of the year yet. But GrogCon is going on despite the hurricane. MW flew down there today. Actually, he flew down there this morning from Washington, D.C. He caught a flight down to Orlando to attend the AD&D 1E convention. Another gentleman I know who you'll hear on my podcast. I got an interview with him while he's on the road, drove 18 hours from New Jersey in a Tesla down there to attend the convention, you know, hoping, just hoping that he would be able to catch charging stations once he got down there. And and he, he was able to. So, you know, people are, are excited to play AD&D first edition. They're devoted. And MW is one of those brave souls. So let's see what he has to say. Hello, Cerebravores. This is first-time caller M.W. Lewis from the world's Ben W. Lewis. I'm listening to your current podcast, which is titled S1B15D&D Controversies Bonus. And there's nothing the M.W. Lewis likes more in his world is controversy. Now, I'm at the part of the discussion, maybe 40 minutes in, 40 minutes plus, and you guys are talking about a lot of very important things. These are very serious matters that you are uh, ruminating uh, upon, and much is being posited and, and suggested and theorized about and suggest, uh, and, and encountered, I believe, and some of it might be driven by phone calls. But here's what old MW says. What do you do about the world around the players? How much agency can that world take away from the players? Do they make a deal with the devil or Sauron and then become one of his minions? Is that awful? Does that ruin? He'll be back here in a second. 
All right. Does that? I, I just realized that sound pipe or crack pipe, whatever the heck this is called, <laughs> yes, has a minute and a half pipe. limit. So I went on and on. I was probably 85 yeah, minutes into my call pipe. when I realized I got cut off. So does that ruin it for the players? Does the fact that the world around it can act upon them just as much as it acts upon they can act upon it? And I don't mean the world within an, an individual adventure, but the greater world around it. So I point back to the modules, the early modules from TSR from the late 70s and the 80s, which I, I often say uh, the criticism of them is really unfair. Lots of people criticize those modules. There's not a lot of context to them, a lot of, not a lot of surrounding world building, et cetera, et cetera. But if you play them just simply as a how you did back then, you didn't care that the module started with some kind of quick description that said, you're on the road traveling in this direction, and ahead of you is a keep on the borderlands. It doesn't say from where you came. It doesn't say what your purpose is. It doesn't really say much. But when you were 14 or 15, you didn't care. Well, I, at least a lot of people didn't care. Maybe some of you did. But a lot of people just went with it and had a lot of fun going through those modules, all of them, the great modules. Um, but then world building happens and Greyhawk comes out and Forgotten World. So I do think there So I do think there was a lot of people who actually did care, especially those who were aging out of their early teenage years and started playing the game more as adults or started really wanting the 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 adventures to match literature that they loved to read. So you stop playing it as a child and you start playing it as an adult and you want these worlds and you want all this. So the more the players want that stuff, then the more they have to be open. If you're going to, if a dungeon master is going to take time to create a world around these adventures and around the players, then in absolutely that world impacts them and has its own agency. So if the players do not do what the king asked them to do or what they swore to do to the king, they are going to become outlaws, whether that's what they're in the game for or not. That's just where the game takes you. In fact, I play with players today, and we are all adults, and I try to create a, a lot of context in the world, especially in the early adventures. I try to introduce them. Somebody said, if you don't have the monsters ever flee, the players may think that's not really part of the game, and they may never flee to save their own lives. So I agree. You have to establish these kind of thoughts and expectations early on. So when I have my first few sessions in, in my game, my Monday night AD&D game, I actually had one of the – a few of the players, and I, I read – I actually had a few of the players, and I read this uh, session description in my podcast, Worlds of M.W. Lewis. I, I don't remember which episode number, but it wasn't that long ago. Uh, go on trial for fighting bandits on the road. Because in my world, charges were brought against them from the bandits' families who were from a nearby town. And even though the players were actually justified in their actions, which resulted in the death of, of some of the bandits, justice had to be served. And just like if you read uh, Njal's saga or any of the Icelandic sagas, every time there's a death, there's a trial. There might be revenge later, but it always had a trial. So that's the world we're in, and we did it that way. And the players at first were kind of like, what the you-know-what? But they ended up liking it, and they dug it. So in the Greyhawk game, 
uh, players needed to use a, a, a high-level cleric, had to hire a high-level cleric to cure their lycanthropy that they had been infected with or suspected they were infected with. And they didn't have the funds as first and second-level characters to pay, and now they're in debt to that church that did the service to them. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just forget about it? Does the fact they're in that church's debt, does that go away just because the players want to just kind of move on to the next adventure? No, I, I don't think I can forget about it. And, you know, to the credit of the players, they don't – a credit to the players is that they don't forget about it either. And um, they always talk about it. We have this debt. We have this debt. We have to take care of this debt. And uh, one of the players is trying to purchase a mansion outside of Salt Marsh. I won't say any more. Maybe you know the adventure. It's a good module. You won the Sinister Secret of Salt Marsh. Well, they found the deed to the mansion, and he's trying to buy it. The character's trying to buy it, and he hired a barrister in Salt Marsh. Now, that's a whole little side thing going on and, and a legal situation going on. Will the characters forget about it when they move on to the next adventure? Should we just erase the, those storylines and pretend they didn't happen? Or do we let the world – or do we do they operate in that world? Are we trying to make a world that uh, just like the world we live in today, any action you take has a ripple effect that uh, could impact you later on? I, I think as a kid, back when I was 13, 14, 15, we probably didn't want to play within those confines. Uh, even if we were playing Greyhawk, we probably didn't want the world, outer world to really interfere too much with our adventuring. But I feel when you're older and adults play, except if you're playing one-shots, if you're in campaign mode, I do think the world will take agency away from the player. I hate speak pipe, but agency can be taken away from the players by the world they are in and they are operating in. And in addition, the NP, the retainers and the henchmen have their own agency too. So one of the, one of you, and I apologize, I'm, I've been working while listening to you. So I didn't catch all your names or I wasn't recognizing all your voices. Um, you all sound exactly alike. Haha. <laughs> Just kidding. You actually don't. But uh, one of you was saying, do hench, you know, I made a mistake by letting my players always play the henchman. And I believe Jason was saying you, you shouldn't, the DM shouldn't do that. And I 100% agree. Uh, all henchmen and uh, retainers should have agency in the world you're in. Otherwise, you're really, you're really just playing a video game where, you know, there's a bunch of Characters, I think of the Borderlands series of uh, PS3 and, and Xbox games. It's a great, great game, by the way. I really enjoy it. My son likes it. I, I don't buy it myself, but I've played it because my son has it. There's a lot of NPC-type characters that assist you in those games, and they're just pay cardboard cutouts that are there to assist you. I think in Dungeons & Dragons and other RPG games, the NPCs need to be played by the uh, Game Master or the Dungeon Master and should definitely have their own agency and in fact the dmg has rules specific to this uh one of the nice things about advanced dungeons and dragons versus basic uh if you want to talk about muddling rules uh the the dmg provides a lot of expansive discussion to provide to guide the dungeon master into uh allowing 
those henchmen and retainers to have agency. I do know when I played basic, those retainers and NPCs were just totally uh, cardboard cutouts. They were the beef shields, or they actually became a second character in some cases, played by one of the players. And they really were, had no impact in the game at all. Uh, or they add, they added nothing of value to the world you were playing in. They were just a tool. They were just another weapon used by the players. And that's a shame. But, you know, when you're playing as a kid, again, you don't care about that. Uh, as an adult, you, you begin to appreciate the nuances that can be created into the game if a DM takes over those roles. Uh, so, uh, in fact, both my games have had really fun and interesting sessions because of the NPC or the retainer slash uh, henchman uh, agency, which has caused trouble, or the, or maybe the players themselves underestimated um, that that how their actions, or or they underestimated how their actions and their failure to treat henchmen properly resulted in uh, situations they they did not want, and uh, I don't think any of them. Uh, are mad about it either they they accept it they understand what happened why uh, a situation didn't work out the way they wanted it to and they they either will change their behavior next time or they'll continue to have the same results so anyway I, i'm enjoying your show i don't get to listen to cerebravore very much but i'm enjoying this episode immensely thank you i had totally forgotten how much that plays I listened to it initially when it came in. I forgot how much it played into BJ's question for it's all. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So there, that's MW's answer to your question, BJ. You're, 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 you're muted, muted, it looks like. Sorry. Uh, bingo. I went. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I was, as he was talking about that, I was thinking about, um, and you can find various blog posts and then some YouTube videos on, on the Hickman Revolution. Some of them good and some people critical of the influence that Tracy Hickman had on the direction of D&D as he introduced a, a concept of abandoning sort of random contrived sandbox play. Well, we're doing this because we're here to play D&D, you know, there's the dungeon, go for it. And, and really into more of um, wanting the players to have motivations other than just killing and looting. Um, having an, a, a plot or a story that goes into the uh, weaves into the adventure, the dungeons making sense logically is like why would anybody why would anybody build a dungeon like this? Why would you have a fifty foot foot long corridor separate? You know, um, and then attainable ends you know within a couple of sessions. So look, we need to have a story that has a beginning and middle and end. And after one or two sessions, there's a plot, there's some resolution to the plot. Um, and, and some people like that and some people don't, but that seems to be, I, I know he's talking about, there was a shift in the eighties and it made me think of, I don't I don't know how much the, the so-called Hickman revolution has to do with what MW is talking about, but it certainly sparked my memory there that there was that shift in the eighties from, you know, Again, there's the dungeon. Go for it, too. Now, why are my players here? What do they really want out of this? You know, what's their backstory? My, my, my method acting. What's my motivation? Well, your motivation is if you don't do anything, then we'll call it a night and I'll see you next week. Well, and I think a lot of it, I mean, and, and MW 
I think acknowledges this pretty well, that a lot of it just comes down to what sort of game that the, the players in the GM want to play, right. Is, is, are, is the group in the, you know, let's kick down some doors and roll some dice to kill some kobolds and take their gold back to town mode. Or are we in the, you know, um, we want to do the, you know, let's let's go to the library and find the, you know, old text that has all this kind of secret information about the king so that we can blackmail the king into, you know, sending extra gold to the merchant guild so that they can all that sort of, you know, much more kind of intriguing kind of world engagement, for lack of a better term, stuff. Um, I thought it was funny. So for, for those of us who were not uh, teenagers in the 70s who did not start with those AD&D sort of things. I actually, my um, part of the reason that I bounced off of D&D when I was younger, um, D&D in particular, was that I, so I got the third edition player's handbook for Christmas when I was in sixth, seventh grade, maybe. I don't remember exactly. There's I, My grandmother wrote a thing in the front cover so I could figure it out. But anyway, the point being, um, one of the things that I really bounced off of was uh, the way that certain kind of uh, mechanical structures worked, like especially armor class. I was like, well, okay. So basically with the way that the weight system and the armor class in this game works, there's no reason at all for me to wear lighter armor unless I hit the, you know, 100% weight limit and I'm actually over encumbered. But as you know, a kid who was not a very good boy scout and was seriously out of shape, I know exactly how much it is uncomfortable to carry more weight in your backpack when you, you know, don't need to carry that weight, right? That that feels totally right. Like, is Aragorn really going to be like, well, you know, my AC is better in the chainmail, so that's what I'm wearing from now on. Or is he going to be like, well, you know, we're traveling overland for a while, so going to trim all the weight down that I can, even if it's not the, you know, binary encumbered over encumbered and then put on the chainmail shirt for the big battle where, you know, you're going to need that sort of thing. And that that was one of the big things that I bounced off of was that, you know, I felt like the the kind of rule structure elements made it much more difficult to play the sort of stories that I was interested in as a kid. Um, but I also think it, um, I think one of the big things that comes into play, especially as you start to do the sort of larger world stuff and if you have rules or even if you're not necessarily using kind of rules to structure a lot of those things is that those elements you know the the kind of underlying assumptions the especially the kind of structural assumptions once you start to apply rules to those things they start to matter in a way that they don't when you don't really engage with those things so i think about um there's a game that i remember that the game has very, very detailed demographic information for all these different kingdoms within this world. And the character generation involves a pretty substantial element of, you know, you roll for your character's, you know, social class background. And based on that, you get a certain level of education. And so there's different tables for education for the different social classes and all that sort of stuff. Fairly extensive role procedure for all that sort of stuff. And then at the end of all this section, talking about player characters and NPCs and how to kind of generate up adventurers, there's one table that is the character's kind of political philosophy. 
And basically it has, I don't remember five or six slots. And I think it's, you know, zero to 40 on a percentile is basically ambivalent, not, not really any strong political feelings anyway. And then I think it's three more and it's conservative, moderate, liberal as the, the next 60% for the hundred percent. The sort of point that I'm getting at there is that, okay, so you can see the idea of like having a character randomly roll, but when you compare the political opinion table that takes into account nothing of the character's background that's established in all these other tables versus all the other tables that use all of these different things to reflect on each other, that starts to feel much more like a, you know, a base assumption of the author, right? Is, is the author assuming that everyone is just ambivalent, conservative, moderate, or liberal, and that they're, you know, the background that they grew up in and their level of education and all of these things that we know in the real world have an effect on the likely political positions a person is likely to, to kind of identify with. Do those, do those not take place in this world, right? Do, do these various groups, you know, do, for instance, to, to get a little more political, do the people in power not have like a vested interest in maintaining that power in this world? Or is it just, you know, eh, yeah, you know, you just, you just, you know, totally random. You just grow up and decide how you feel about all this sort of stuff. And that, especially as you get into much more of the kind of world engagement stuff, I think that's where those issues and, and those elements start to crop up, I guess, is, is the way to put it. That when you have um, what starts to feel like kind of weird assumptions, things that don't actually kind of mesh entirely because the real world is a complicated place. And so when you start to put more emphasis on making a secondary world more like the real world, I think you end up with those sorts of things, right? That you end up with the, well, why does it make it right? Why do dwarves always use axes? Shouldn't they use pikes instead? Because they're short and they like to fight in, you know, close ranks. So historically that's what people did using pikes, not battle axes and shields how much do you buy into that versus how much you say, well, we like dwarves with battle axes and shields. So we're going to use it anyway, even though it makes more sense for them to, you know, dress more like 16th century land snacks rather than looking like this kind of weird Viking characters. Carl. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think it's a very interesting point, like NPC agency and, and everything that he talked about. And then also character motivation i really like how he set things up for his players and it goes back to showing how mw really has set up the world and communicated to his player this is the way it's going to go and and i like how he also comments about you know way, way back when we first started playing this we didn't really care about that but now it's important which i think i mean it shows a maturity in his group and you know their their gaming and how it's changed and evolved over time you know, from, you know, maybe maybe more of a hack and slash or we don't worry about what's going on outside of the dungeon, but now we do. So, so he had a lot of really great points that uh, makes me want to, we should bring him onto the show and talk about a lot of those maybe in more detail. Although he's pretty thorough, I think. But but I, I think it's pretty neat. I, I mean, I really love, love that you can take, and that's maybe that's the beauty of these, these older adventures, is that because there is no... There is no expectation of of the the outer framework. There's no Hickman effect in meta plot and meta story. There's no Ed Greenwood and Elminster puffing puffing on a pipe weed and telling you how the world works. 
it's kind of like you make it up as you go. And I think that's really showing forth in how, you know, the beauty of like Moldway, say, for example, in The Lost City and reading through its its outline in the original one and then how in the five view they've expanded it, you know, which which is pretty fascinating and how you how you can expand it and how the outline was there for you uh, back in back in the original incarnation of the lost city with Moldvay and to make it more of a campaign but here's the structure go for it you know here's here's some ideas but you know it's up to you to decide how how these npcs are going to react how you know the players are going to interact with the npcs um so so i think and, and that makes those products i think more uh, maybe more a little more malleable, right? And compared to, unfortunately, like as much as I love Zeb Cook, you know, some of the stuff he did with Dark Sun is so, is so railroady. You might as well, you know, sit back on the coal car and the train. I mean, it's it's a, uh, it's kind of neat how these older products, you know, maybe they had that. They they're they're thinking more of you know, of let's let's let the the GMs of the world, you know, put in their own ideas for how their campaign is going to work as opposed to like, here's the meta plot. Now you, the players have to play this meta plot. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of, that's very interesting. And I think that heart, a lot of what MW kind of alluded to is, uh, is in that res- in his, you know, call. You know, that's when I think of like D and D where I sometimes struggle with, official products and this goes back to wizards the uh, tsr not just with kind of wizards of the coast is on one hand dnd is a toolkit for you to develop fantasy adventures for your players on the one hand it's nice for them to just to then give you sort of an implied or default cosmology and, and set of deities and this is but it's it, sometimes sometimes i feel like and they'll, they'll, this will happen with every edition. They'll, they'll go back to basics and they'll start adding more and more and more and more and updating the lore. And at some point, it's sort of like um, there's there's a there can be a pressure depending on who you're playing with to I can't I not I not just have to observe the rules of D and D the mechanics of D and D for us to be playing D and D. Demogorgon has to be on the bottom layer of the abyss. Or we're not playing D and D, you know. Pelor is the god of the sun, or we're not playing D and D. Goblins worship Maglubiet, or we're not playing D and D. And I remember the one of the the I've generally enjoyed Five E, but one of the products where I first products where I was kind of like, I don't think I really care for this approach was the Mordenkind's Tome of Foes. It had some really cool monsters in it and some really cool mechanics, but I I, I don't like the game designers telling me what my setting is. Well, this is how demons work. Well, what if I don't want them to work that way? And, and it kind of gets back to the alignment thing is where, well, why is alignment important? Well, because there are whole planes of existence dedicated to those alignments. Like, well, who says? What if that doesn't exist in my world? Now why don't, Now, what's the utility of alignment? You know, when, when you strip away the, the narrative of it, because I want to play a different kind of setting, what, what, how do I use this now? And I, I think you can't, it helps to have those de- default implications of well this is kind of what a ranger is and this is kind of what a paladin is that's good when you're starting out and you you're, you're a novice as a dm but at some point when you want to try to customize stuff for your group and give them a new experience instead of the same thing we've been doing for 10 15 20 30 years 
baggage of, of sort of the narrative that goes with it where, you know, I, I guess what I'm talking about is, it, yeah, if you look at some of that older stuff before they started filling in those get place blanks on the map and those, you know, contact higher plane mentioned 12 planes of existence, but it didn't really tell you much about what was there other than maybe the degree to which the residents would be honest with you if you asked them a question versus now we've got the great wheel and it's all mapped out and you can put it on a, it's like the opening of game of Thrones where you can like, you can put it all in a dynamic. I remember what you call those things. Um, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. That was just my reaction there. <laughs> no, I, I think he brought up some interesting points and, and I will invite him to, to come on. We'll, we'll come up with an appropriate topic for him as long as it's, you know, D and D related. I think MW is very happy to, to, to join in. You know, maybe he can, Tell us a little bit about how GrogCon went, and we, we can talk because he's getting to play. So he, this is actually, even though he played a bunch as a kid back in the day, he never went to tournaments or conventions back in the kid. Oh. So this is only his second convention, and there, he, he's going to get play some tournaments down there, which he hasn't been able to do before. So it'll be interesting to hear how what, what he thinks of old school tournaments. But I, I think our time is to a close, gentlemen. I thank you for joining me for this session of Cerebro 4. Um, I was going to, if I can hop in for just a uh second, because BJ said something that I thought was really um, uh, a good point to sort of pick out, which is the way that the kind of D&D, the sort of line contracts and expands and contracts and expands as they move through editions. Um, As well as I think one of the interesting things is the way that just from the kind of starting point like, you know, the first book for each edition, there's different changes. I actually think that's one of the big things that a lot of um, the sort of grognard types uh, react badly to with fifth edition is not just the sort of mechanical stuff about proficiency and all of these different things, um, but also that tieflings and dragonborn are character races in the player's handbook. And so the expectation is you can just choose to be a tiefling or a dragonborn as opposed to in a lot of the, you know, older games where it's like, no, tieflings are super rare, right? That the, you know, people see a person with blue skin and horns and they're like, what the hell is wrong with you? Bringing at the stake sort of thing. Well, well, Carl can speak. That's a good point. But, you know, Carl can speak to this because that was an issue even back in the day. Think about when Unearthed Arcanon came out and now all of a sudden you can play drow. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Or, or oh, BJ yeah. probably can too. But you, you're, I mean, that was a big deal, you know, when they all of a sudden threw all these new races at you. Well, and, and God forbid they make one race that has better stats than the other races because everybody is going to play that one from now on. Right. Yeah. So that's not, oh, a, right. that's not a five. Well, they keep, you know, really you know yeah. the it's drow like, were your yeah. edgy, uh, it, you know, they, they were your go to race for the edge lords and then they kind of tamed them. And so now then the tieflings, well, there's your go-to race for the edge lords, and they've kind of made them cute and cuddly now. And it'll be the gnolls next because the gnolls are your demon things, right? So, yeah. so they'll be the, they'll be. Yeah, the well, I think I think I think I think that they're kind of getting away from any of the look at kind of the way they're describing races and, and yeah, races are not mono. What is it called? There's no monoculture. Yeah, but there's no monoculture in races, right? Yeah, now you're gonna have yeah, I mean, to be like anyway, a, it's, a right, richer, it's right? You're a mutant. I'm I'm not a regular person. I'm a person who's gone through the trial of grasses and I have weird cat eyes and carry not one but two swords and fuck anything that moves because that's basically Geralt's character qualities. Yeah. So and the way you fix that is you just eliminate any bonuses for 
whatever their genetic her- heritage is. You can look done. however you want. That's what they've done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, and that, that's just, a, it's just, a, you know, just, you know, what, what sort of skin you want and what, right. You know, what yeah, exactly. But yeah. I mean, all that's, which, of the, which makes it more of a video game. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like well, in Skyrim when you choose a character race and the, what's his name, the, the Imperial dude is like, Oh, a long way from the Imperial City, aren't you? And then nobody comments on it again in the game because you know the only thing that matters is basically that you get one at will once per day power from that, and that's basically it. Yep. Yep. But we we, we are running a little bit long, so I, so we we are going to cut this off here. But this is definitely something we could pick up at another point. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, MW, for calling in. Take care of yourselves, all right. and I will talk to you all soon. Broadcast, cerebral podcast. Let's savor all the flavors from the silent Hepstrong. The Alstells and Pods past cerebral podcast. You're counting down your last as you admire them all. BJ doesn't seem like a big fan of Palladium. <laughs> I just haven't played it that much, so it, it, it's a neat. It's a, it's. I, I mean, obviously, it's dated now, right? But at the time, it, you know, it's a very refreshing change from D and I mean, it's effectively D and D house rules, but you know, because it came out like, like eighty four or eighty five. But you've got active defenses. You have dodges, parries. You have um, armor. The, the way armor works is really nice because say you have an AC of ten, it. A four higher hits, kind of like Savage Worlds, still D20, but a four mm-hmm. higher hits. If you roll under the armor class, then the armor absorbs the damage. And armor has a certain amount of structural uh, SDC, has a certain amount of damage it can take before the armor is destroyed. If you roll over the armor, then you pass bypass the armor and do damage directly to their hit points. So it, it makes armor more meaningful. Plus, like say, you can do dodges and parries and things. So it does interest me there. And then like every, all the satanic panic things, all the things that they talk about satanic panic are ramped up to 11 and played in fantasy. And it was totally <laughs> off the radar. Like, like you have a witch class that is, is truly a witch. Like you need like a five intelligence and you can be a witch. Like that's it. Cause you know, you, 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 you give yourself in service to some demon. They pump up your stats and give you all, all kinds of spells and stuff, but you have summoners, you have, you know, all, all the bad things that you think about, they're all in there. Every race has a percentage of being a cannibal. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to lean into that stuff, but it's right. it's a really neat system. It's it's it, it it you know it's pretty innovative. And then they've 
once I got into riffs, unfortunately, if you ever get around to picking it up, you want to pick up first edition, not second. Because second edition was after riffs came out. And then they decided they had to make everything riffs compatible. So second edition, Plagueum Fantasy has changed to be more compatible with riffs. So they kind of changed some things up. But the, the first edition is still a pretty solid game by itself. It, it's actually pretty interesting. Thing with riffs is you have, um, so you have mega damage because you have to differentiate between the idea, like a lot of games do, of you have, it's like Robotech, right? If, if you're familiar with Robotech, your your handheld weapons aren't going to do damage to the mecha, but mecha damage, the mecha weapons are obviously going to do damage to people. So you have to differentiate that. So mega damage is one point of regular damage is, or I'm sorry, 100 points of regular damage is one point of mega damage. And then you have, so, but you get to the point where your characters are running around with mega damage weapons. So, you, you know, your, your character has a blaster that just turns somebody into a, a pile of goo with one shot. And then you have other characters because it's not balanced at all. You have other characters running around like rogue scientists or, or like you have beggars in there. Or they're not called beggars. I forget what they're called, like vagrants or something that have like nothing. So, you know, he's got like a like an old 38 or a knife or a bow and arrow and everybody else is running with these you know, laser weapons are going to atomize people. And so, it, you know, there's like no, it, there's zero sense of balance in it. But um, it's, yeah, which is, I mean, so what if you want to play? So you have to say, I guess, caution players. Well, I know you want to play this, but if the other players are going to play this type of thing, you got to play, you should play this, right? I guess that you have well, to do, well right? yeah, you have to, ba- you have to, yeah, it's got to be the idea of everybody's got to be on board for the campaign is, I don't think, the game's broken because of that, but people have to be on board with it. Like, like say I'm playing a vagrant and I don't have, you know, you're, you're playing a, a juicer who's somebody that's kind of like Bane effectively. Mm-hmm. Right. And for BJ, who probably doesn't remember riffs at all, but juicers like Bane, he's got these, you just have got, so he's super fast, super strong can do all the school stuff. Obviously he's going to outclass my vagrant in just about everything, but my vagrant is smart. He knows how to hotwire cars. He knows this and that. And it's just, you know, if you if you have a group that's mature enough to be able to balance out that, that, you know, where you're not just going to not all be combat, then you could have a, a totally fun game. But if you're going to always be in combat, then you're never going to play those other kind of characters because, you know, they're useless. That's, so it just depends on the, you know, it depends there's on probably in, in any system. There's a. <clears throat> it's kind of it's kind of on the GM to provide every character its moment to do what it does and not be eclipsed. Like, I don't think you have to, I don't think you necessarily have to play the kind of system where, okay, well, we're going to do point by. So everybody has the exact same stats and you just decide which ones are high and low and everything is evenly balanced. That's probably a good idea when it's people who haven't played with each other and you're, Uh you're you're playing a pickup game or a, a game at a game store where it's just kind of an open table. But I think once people kind of get to know each other, and you know your players, you can do that imbalance because you can then make space for people to uh, to uh, show off the choices they made and the way they built their characters and what they can, what they do. You know, right? The pro, the pro, where it comes in with riffs, where it's more tricky on the GM and riffs is. So if you have a character who's a dragon, because you can play dra- a dragon. If you have a dragon, you have a glitter boy, which is a mecha, you, you know, and you have a full conversion Borg, right? All these are mega damage creatures that do friggin', you know, every, every roll is one times 100 damage, that kind of stuff. And then you got your vagrant who's running around with his revolver and his knife. Well, any combat you get in, if that vagrant is hit, because anybody that's coming up against the mecha is also using mega damage weapons. So so unfortunately, they're, your, your other characters are super squishy. <laughs> 
And, and so that's where it gets really tough. If it was just, you know, oh, you're good in combat and you're good out of combat, it'd be one thing. But the, the problem is because of the damage thing, it gives mm-hmm. it where your squishy characters are effectively, if they don't hide during combat, if they can't so hide you, during you've combat, always, they're, they're dead. Justice League, you've always got to give Batman a bomb to defuse or, right. or a, you know. Well, well, that's like where you see the challenge because. Yeah, when, when they go to Apocalypse, come on. Well, what Batman doesn't belong on Apocalypse. Let, let's be honest. You know, humans don't belong on Apocalypse. So Wonder Woman and Superman go to Apocalypse, that's fine. But the idea of these regular humans going to Apocalypse and surviving, that, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. 